0: Welcome to the Hard Parking Podcast, sponsored by NSX Channel Instagram. I am Jay Finning. I am your host. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. This is a non-automotive automotive podcast. And it's episodes like today. That's why I use that to describe the show, because I have a special guest coming up. His name is Noah Nelson. He's an actor, writer, producer. These days, he's doing more writing and producing than acting. And he's going to talk about a spy thriller that he has coming out with his father, Craig T. Nelson, called The Operative. We're going to get into a bunch more. We're basically having a conversation, more so conversation than interview. That's my style. So you want to make sure you subscribe. And that's definitely an interview you don't want to miss. If you haven't checked out the most recent episode with Jane D. Amelio, that's a hot one. A lot of people are listening to it. So you want to go back and check that one out. I was just a guest on the Puzzled Minds podcast. We talked about adulting. So the Puzzled Minds podcast, it's one of my favorite podcasts I like to listen to. They're going to be on my show in the next episode or two, but you want to go and check them out. In the most recent episode, I told a story and I was talking about luck versus chance, and I don't really believe in luck, but I really need to walk that back a little bit after having some conversations with some people. I don't believe in luck when it comes to gambling odds, like a scratch-off ticket, or if you go to the casino, no one gets lucky. You know, they say you hit a lucky streak. It's all about chance. It's all about probabilities. It's all about numbers. And sometimes you just hit those numbers. I do believe in intuition, but I believe in real-life intuition. If you have a feeling something bad just happened somewhere, it probably did. But if you go and you're at the craps table and you have the dice in your hands and you're like, I have a feeling this is it, that's hope based on your expectations, your gambling. Okay, all these things, just this just has to work out for me. And like I said in the last episode, when you have that kind of intuition, you have that kind of hope, and you just feel like everything has lined up for you to finally win or something good to happen, that's when you get disappointed. So, somewhere in there, there's luck, there's chance, there's really probabilities, there's intuition. Have an update on Jay's Rental Car of the Week. Guess what? I found the videos. I found the videos that I did from 2018. So, what I'm going to do is I may talk about those on the show as my Rental Car of the Week, except for this week because of my guest. However, I'm going to edit those videos and I'm going to put them to the YouTube page. So, make sure you follow Hard Parking Podcast on YouTube for the support, if nothing else. Still trying to get up to 100 subscribers. And you guys make me feel bad. You make me feel like a loser because I can't even get 100 subscribers on my YouTube channel. I have thousands of followers on social media. Thousands. Thousands. I can't get 100 subscribers on YouTube. And not all YouTubers look at me. I'm living the life in your face. There's some good YouTube like mine. But what we should really do is the next 60 seconds, I need you guys to listen really close about Este Vato. From Gabe Hernandez, who did Chingona,
1: Border, On, and Fuego. Get involved. Back the to project today on Indiegogo for Este Vato, the hitman store, the second comic to the Chingona, Border, On, Fire, released this year. Get involved. They have some great rewards at many pledge levels. Go to Indiegogo.com. Search the projects Este Vato, E-S-T-E-V-A-T-O. Watch the video on the campaign page. Make a pledge. Share with your social networks as well. Gabriel Hernandez with GH Comics is excited to bring you the second story to follow up the Chingona series, Border on Fire. Este Bato, a.k.a. The Dude, introduces you to the uprising of a young boy who moves to the ranks of the cartel world. They also introduce you to other villains as well, but the first nemesis and archrival of Chingona is the infamous Este Bato. Learn more about the comic, the creator, the series, and how to get involved with this project offering some exclusive early bird discounts again that's este vato hitman story on indiegogo go support today
0: that's right make sure you guys get over to indiegogo and check that out coming up no one else Today's special guest is sponsored by Kuya Automotive, currently specializing in new and used NSX parts. NSX owners, hurry up and head over to kuyaauto.com and inquire about special pricing or on Instagram at kuya underscore automotive. That's Kuya Automotive. We're big brothers looking out for you. Today's special guest is writer, actor, producer, Noah Nelson. He's known for writing a few episodes on CSI New York, Hawaii Five-O, Secrets and Lies, The Oath, and he's also working on an awesome show called The Operative. Noah, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Hey, man.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for making yourself available. You got it. Do people ever reach out to you in confusion, believing you're the African-American Noah Nelson voice actor?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Um, No, Uh, but there have been a couple of times in the past where I've gone to a meeting where I showed up to a bunch of surprised looks. (laughs) And then they read off. Just to end their confusion, they they read off like a a resume that wasn't mine. Yeah, I say no, I was like, I'm not that guy.
0: They're like, wow, so they're like, you've done Adventure Time, Naruto, Skyrim. So how are you staying afloat during these times? You know, how is it affecting kind of what you do? Before we get into you know some of your history,
2: you know, I won't lie, it's it's been it's been rough in terms of you know the business shutdown. Yeah, and I think I've had it easier than some and harder than others which i'm sure is a story with other writers i know that there's a lot of tv writers and and i think some film writers as well who's sort of had to shelve projects or completely rethink their projects given what's sort of happening not just with covid and the pandemic but also in our culture and so where projects that you know would have played well probably are not going to get bought So they've had to sort of rethink stories or come up with something new altogether. I've had some strange luck where I've been given a couple projects to write that sort of play in what's going on right now. So um, I've been fortunate in that regard. And the operative is really timely, really relevant. So it's in that regard, it's been okay. It's been good.
0: Yeah. I think one of the big things that people lose track of or lose sight of is it's the the things we're going through affects everything. I've been working, but my wife has a, an essential job. So we've been just kind of like you were saying on a different level where it's just like, well, we've been, you know, more fortunate than, than some and not as fortunate as others, but we're making it through.
2: Yeah. It seems that that's kind of a universal story with a lot of people and, you know, it, it's it's learning how to adjust and you know there are some things where you realize it was a luxury that you had <laughs> that you may have viewed as a necessity yeah you know um that you have to sort of cut back on and be smart you know just be smarter about um but yeah i mean here in hollywood i think everyone is is you know ner- they're just as nervous as anyone else especially below the line guys you know crew who live paycheck to paycheck and you know, I think it's really hit them probably the hardest. Um, but it's, it's affected everyone from the top down, you know, frankly. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's scary and daunting times for sure.
0: Let's step into some of the, the history here. Um, we're the same age, but our lives are probably a little different growing up. And I was looking at your father's career Craig T. Nelson with his first, I guess, probably big role in poltergeist at that time. You're somewhere between the age of five and six. What was your life like?
2: So funny enough, I have two older siblings, so I'm the youngest and my older siblings, I I don't think they ever really cared for the entertainment industry. I, however, loved it from a, a little, just when I was a little kid, I loved going with my dad to the studio a lot. And, uh, I'd have a bike and I'd ride around and, you know, like going to like the prop houses and seeing the different sets. And, you know, it was for me, it was a lot of fun. But I remember when I was six, I think somewhere around there that my dad took me to uh, the premiere of Poltergeist <laughs> and gave me a blanket and said, you can put this over your head, the scary parts. And I got to tell you, man, that blanket never left my head. <laughs> I think I kept it over my head the entire time. And the funny thing was, like, I remember seeing that tree be- just laying on its side, the one that swallows the kid,
0: mm-hmm.
2: just laying on the side of one of the um, sound stages. And I remember staring at it as a kid and looking at it and go, that looks fake. But, you know, it didn't matter. Because when I saw the movie, it, it was... Uh, as real and as scary as it could possibly be. You know?
0: It's pretty crazy. So that's always my go-to movie when people ask, you know, what's one movie that scared the shit out of you as a kid? <laughs> yeah. The Jack in the Box? This,
2: Oh my gosh, yeah, The Jack in the Box. Like, I don't know yeah, a kid yeah, that will,
0: arms. You, you, you don't look under your bed. Like, that <laughs> That did some damage to a lot of people. This is the
2: genius of Spielberg. Yeah. And uh, I think it was Toby Hooper who directed it, but... You know, if you think about that guy's story career and you realize most of the movies in his grab bag that he's responsible for were not horror movies. But the one horror movie that he was primarily responsible for is still not just relevant, but you watch it today. It's still, in my opinion, it it, it still stands up. It's like it's a good it's a good film. There's a lot yeah. of his art. Jaws. I mean, I think even though some people would disagree with that, but Indiana Jones, I mean, it's for me, probably one of the most perfect movies ever, but yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how much technology has improved and how much stuff we can make real, but sort of doesn't have the substance of some of the movies of our yesteryear.
0: You know, so in our time, I think the movies were, they spent a lot of focus on fear like scaring you not startle because this is thing that kids do right you walk around the corner they're like boo and they're like I scared you well no you startle me like being scared is being scared to look underneath your bed for years after watching a movie you know being scared is and fearful is is thinking twice about going out and camping in the middle of the woods with your buddies because you just saw you know Friday the 13th or you know Halloween or, or one of those things and I don't think the movies, there's so much on shock value now and startle value and just instant, 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 go, go, go. They don't have enough time to really build that fear, right? Because you leave, you leave the movies or you stop watching the show on Netflix or whatever and you're not scared. You're just like, oh, wow, that was a great movie.
2: It's the things in the dark that you can't see that your imagination starts putting context to. And it will put context to on your own because it will start building the thing that you're most scared of which is why I think sometimes reading a Stephen King book is far scarier than actually seeing the film, right? It's your own imagination can cook up the thing that scares you most of all. I think that was like really demonstrated really well with the movie alien. You know, it's like, you didn't get to see that thing for a long time, but you knew it was there. There, There's some people that do that better than others right now. And then, it is sort of something that we've forgotten about. It's that slow build. It's funny because I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a director and, and neither of us are fans of of horror movies or horror genre, but we're talking about that very thing, what you just mentioned, which is it's almost like people want to immediately see it and know what it is and, and, and make it as gratuitous and bloody and violent and macabre as possible. Well, sometimes it's far more effective just to keep that thing in the dark and let the audience's imagination cook up what that thing might be. And I think that goes across every medium, not just horror.
0: It's interesting you mentioned Alien because I watched it after watching Prometheus. I watched it again on the plane and then had my wife sit down and watch it with me a few weeks ago. And usually she's like, it's an old movie. It looks so old and, and that movie because of, just like you were saying, you don't really see it. Everybody's getting taken out. They have these old analog, there's something about, by the way, those old sci-fi movies and those big, huge buttons and those really crappy backlit displays, but they have this little analog thing and it's just going beep, 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 and it just speeds up as it gets closer and they can't see it. And it's this dark corridor and the lights are flicking. I mean, that instills that fear that you're talking about. So yeah, that, those movies when done well, they really hold up.
2: Yeah. It's
0: a good movie. I love Alien. You had mentioned earlier, um, how much you loved it as a, as a small child, but maybe some of your older siblings weren't too excited about, you know, the whole career. Why do you, why do you think that is?
2: <laughs> um, honestly, I just think it's DNA. I mean, you know, my older brother's a, a good writer and, uh, even though that's not his current profession, but I was recently, i mean writing, producing the oath. Uh, we were in Puerto Rico and I flew my oldest daughter out there and she, came to the set and i had a you know one of those director chairs for her at video village and propped her up there and and in front of the monitors and she got to see dad work and i thought for sure she'd be impressed and like wow that was cool dad like not at all man she could not have been more bored like within 10 minutes i could see her just like with her hand on her head barely keeping it upright she's ready to fall asleep and i so you want to go back to the hotel and she's like, please.
0: <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, how so, old is she?
2: She's 26.
0: Oh, okay. All right. I was thinking though, so even when your your children were smaller, like, unlike your father, he's front and center, right? And you've done a lot of work on the back end. And having children in school, is that a lot easier to kind of shield them from peers in school or other people be like, oh, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so? You know, is it a little more normalized or kind of the same thing? Or do you not have even felt the effect?
2: I haven't really felt any of that. My youngest daughter is about to go into middle school. If her dad was a famous celebrity, maybe that would be a thing. But she, she hasn't run into that. I know she brought her grandfather, my dad, to a. It was called the Grand Lunch, where they bring kids or bring their grandparents or parents uh, to school for school lunch, and that was pretty special for because it was like you know my grandfather's Mr. Incredible.
0: Right. You know? <laughs> right. Right.
2: So. <laughs> So that was that was pretty cool. Of course, you know, kids are excited about that, I think, for a day or two and then it's old hat. It's like whatever.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what I was speaking to. Um, the fact that, you know, when you're coming up, you know, your father is it's coach, you know, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a guy in poltergeist and all these other movies and T V shows, and it's a little harder to kind of just be you, I would I would imagine, at school without everybody looking and only seeing that connection. Whereas your daughter, Yeah, so
2: So I had the benefit of a mom who moved every year uh, to a different town. So I would always be the new kid at school and I would never tell anyone who my dad was until maybe it would come out towards the end of the year. But by then we were, you know, moving to a different state or a different city or whatever. And, you know, I I was going to be the new kid again and no one would know anything. So it was never too much of an issue for me until high school. My dad... I got in a lot of trouble, and um, my dad came up. That was a pretty big deal because we were in Spokane, <laughs> and uh, you know he's never would come to the school. Like for him to fly up, it was it was pretty bad. And um, I mean, he showed up at the school, and I remember walking down the hallway, and i I thought he was going to be there that day. I wasn't sure, but I remember a couple of kids stopping me in the hallway, friends of mine, saying, "Noah." You'll never believe who's here. Coach, man, (laughs) Craig T. Nelson is here at the school. One of his kids goes to the school, and like they weren't putting the last name together, or maybe they didn't think anything other, or maybe they're like, "There's no way this guy's, you know, coach's son. He's got to be a jock. He's got to be a football player, not some skinny kid with long blonde hair
0: because a leather
2: jacket." (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. that's funny. So, do you think that? You know, you waiting till the end of the year was so you can just kind of be your own person. Like, just see me for me. You know, don't see me for the stardom of my family type of deal.
2: Part of it was that. Part of it was uh, I was just really shy. And um, it, it was hard for me to make friends or harder, I guess. And, yeah. and and I like keeping some things private, you know. So, And I valued the friendships I made. Uh, so it was sort of, yeah, it was, it was a bunch of that, but it was mostly, you know, I, I guess I don't, it just felt, it'd feel weird if that was one of the first things out of your mouth, right? Like sure. or If people find out about that then they, it's like, yeah, it, it sort of colors the way that they look at you from then on. And also I didn't grow up with a lot of money. Like my mom didn't have a lot of money. And so it'd be, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be weird. It'd be like, well, how come you're, you get the other questions. How come your dad's not? You know, what I mean? it's like how come you don't live with your, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, just to avoid all of that, it was easier just to um, not say anything.
0: Not having a lot of money though probably keeps you grounded. Once you start getting into that that role in that world of seeing a little bit of success, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate, man, because my both my dad and my mom were were very much about getting a job and kind of making your own. I started working when I was 14 and, and to be honest with you, I enjoyed it, man. I, I didn't, you know, I, I you know, I, even when uh, I moved down to Malibu to live with my dad when I was 16 or 17, Um, I took the city bus down to the blockbuster video, which was a thing back in the day that kids don't have any idea what that is. (laughs) Wow, what a
0: difference. Blockbuster video. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I got it.
2: Um, but yeah, I worked at the Blockbuster Video in the one of the strip malls in Malibu and take the city bus back home. So and I and I went to school at a private school, but the other kids had BMWs and all that kind of stuff. And I took the bus, but I'd I'd be sitting out there literally at the bus stop and the kids would drive by and they'd be (laughs) using Range Rovers. Yeah.
0: Do you remember wanting that or were you just kind of like, yeah, whatever
2: I did. But I, at the same time, um, I had, I had bigger issues. I I didn't know who the hell I was. Yeah. So I was, I was a little like, well, this is, this this is my life.
0: (laughs) You know, we do a lot of things when we're in our late teens, early twenties. And for most of us, and this is one of the things like my daughter started getting into some trouble and whatnot. And you know, my wife would con- you know, obviously be concerned a lot. And I go, you know what, whatever she's doing, as long as she doesn't do anything that permanently stains herself, she'll find her way through. All we can do is tr- is try to be supportive. And this is coming from somebody like me who I don't know what all you've done, but I've done some crazy shit during those times as well, and I'm a completely different, more mature person now. Having gotten through it, so you just have to hope that you don't do anything that's that's going to stain you forever. It's
2: it's interesting you say that, yeah. And I think like I, you know, I got into some trouble. I, I wasn't like a bad kid or anything, but I got into some trouble when I was 16. You know, I acted out and was rebellious and stuff like that. Did dumb things like I drove my Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, up into the school lawn, that kind of like dumb kid stuff. But nowadays with like social media, it's amazing to me because I heard Jack Dorsey say, who's the CEO of Twitter owner, founder, whatever, say that now their thing is it keeps a log of everything forever. Wow. And I just – I just thought about that and I thought about the impact of that, which is, and had a conversation with my youngest kid about it, which is how do you have the responsibility or wherewithal to understand and comprehend that at a young age?
1: Cause right.
2: Cause like you, like you and I break a window in the neighborhood. You had to apologize to neighbors. You had to, you know, mow their lawn, pay for it, you know, and that, that, and then it was over and you, you went on, but now it's like, imagine it's like you break that window. That window's broken forever in a way, you know, it's, it's like, there's something I think not healthy about that.
0: No, I agree. I agree a thousand percent because what will happen is you'll see people, I think it's like a college football or some, some kid 23 or maybe even older, somebody, they were basically someone did a deep Twitter dive and found something that they had tweeted when they were like 18 and held it against them. And then all of a sudden, you know, the the court of public opinion just grilled this guy. And I'm like, I can't even imagine what the hell I would have tweeted when I was 18.
2: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that like, I'm so glad Twitter wasn't around when I was that age. All the dumb things, but that's the other weird irony and hypocrisy going on right now, which is, We're holding people accountable retroactively. So we're turning people into things that they probably are no longer by virtue of the fact that they've grown and developed and changed as a human being. In some cases, probably most. But we're now no longer extending that to anyone. Now we're summing people up based on a statement or something dumb that they said in a moment of wherever they were emotionally, or if they had too much to drink and they were a little bit loose, you know, or whatever. And, and we're also suggesting that no one ever says anything stupid ever that they wish they could, that they wish they could take back. No one ever says that because that's the, that's the standard by which we're measuring people, right? Like you have to be, and, and it's just, that's just not true, man. I mean, we're human beings. We do dumb things. We say stupid stuff.
0: We mature and we evolve uh, mentally.
2: Hopefully, yeah. And
0: we change for the most part, like like you were saying. I did a little spiel on a, on an older episode where I was like, "I people can change." I said, "I'm not the same person I was when I was 20, and I've come across people who are not the same people they were back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago." And it's just because you know, there's a thing that they always say. Well, people don't change. Well, people can change, and that's the thing because people can change, and some people do change, it's just like you're saying. And it's just that's one thing that that really upsets me that I absolutely hate is that, okay, well this person said this thing 15 years ago, this person was a racist 15 years ago. They're a racist now. Or, and it's like, no, I mean, I've seen people change within the course of months or a year. Yeah. And, um,
2: that's what happens. It's like you, you're going along on your journey and then something terrible happens like a world pandemic and it throws you for a loop and you're forced to look at some things and and reevaluate some things and change and adjust and, and hopefully get through it and get through it having a little bit more wisdom and a little bit more understanding about how to manage your finances, you know, better and all this other stuff. But, you know, it seems that we're sort of living in two worlds, one where that's true and another world where we're scrutinized for every little thing that we do that's wrong and summed up in that way and there's a fear of that because there's people online who are like predators who will use that to oh yes to cast stones to you know to string you up to you know throw you under the bus and like it's it's different for you and I cuz we have perspective in terms of we have a time in our lives where we can see where that was never a thing whereas like my youngest kid who just turned uh, 11 that's just the world she lives in. She won't know anything other than that.
0: Yeah. So, do you want to uh, get into some of the, the more stereotypical interview questions here? I have some for you, or do <laughs> you want to? T-
2: <laughs> oh, I think I understand what you mean. Yeah. Sorry, I've only had two cups of coffee this morning.
0: I'm on my third. And I haven't even added any bourbon or any, anything that, like, uh, <laughs> this is what I always say. It's like, I never put bourbon in the first cup because that would mean I have a problem. So I put it in the second <laughs> cup.
2: Hey, you wait to the third cup and then you go, I have a problem, but so what?
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. There's no problem with the third cup. Once you, once you start hitting the first cup, you should probably talk to somebody. So what, let, funny. let's talk about, um, so in 93, right? You're essentially a junior or senior. You have your first credit role in coach. So it seems like you're ready to jump into big roles and big stardom. So what did you do after coach? And It looks like you really didn't do anything for a while. And it had to have been kind of frustrating, especially for a, for a teenager, thinking you're like right there.
2: Yeah, it was. It was frustrating. I was, I was at Pepperdine University, and um, I wasn't smart enough to handle two things, which was being a college student and also auditioning and, and pursuing an acting career at the same time. There were other kids who could. I didn't. Um, And, uh, so I flunked out of college and, um, continued to try to, uh, act and audition. And, uh, I would get close on things and then it wouldn't materialize. And, uh, I was growing really more and more frustrated and also fearful because I'd really clearly sacrificed a lot for this career and I was very anxious and impatient and, uh, it's funny because I remember seeing Jeremy Renner at a number of auditions. He back then wasn't Jeremy Renner.
0: I'm like, who's that um, guy? He's, he's nobody, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. And I was, and, um, and then, you know, I made the transition to become a writer uh, around 25, 24. I mean, I was writing stuff anyway and um, decided that that would be probably a little bit more. It, it, for me – leaving acting and start writing at least i felt like i had something to prove for my effort my work right because at the end of the day you have a script and somebody can say it's a pile of garbage which back then you know it probably was but at least you had something you know um but anyway i remember years later watching something and then a pop jeremy renner (laughs) i was like oh my gosh (laughs) i think it was the dahmer i think he played jeffrey dahmer in some biopic, but. I was really happy to see him. And then, of course, he went on to become even more famous than that. So it's cool. It's cool. It just shows you that you, you, know, you stick around long enough. Potentially someone's going to do your job.
0: Well, I mean, you had the district, right, for 2001, 2003. So that makes you 25, 26-ish?
2: Thereabouts, yeah.
0: Playing a younger version of your father's character. So I guess that really works as far as uh, casting-wise.
2: Yeah, it, I wasn't still acting. I was actually in the writer's room then. Um, I had met John Worth and uh, Peter Linkoff who was a supervising producer back then, uh, and a writer. And, um, he had come off of La Femme Nikita and Peter sort of took me under his wings and, um, under his wing and, uh, got me into the writer's room where I eventually was allowed to pitch a story to Pam say, who was then running the district. And she really liked the story. And so I wrote it with Peter. And so I was writing and then they had these flashbacks of my dad's character at a younger age and they, of course, asked me to, um, to play him. So <clears throat> even though I was at that time set on writing, I was still, yeah, that's why I, was, I, I did that.
0: Where did the writing come from? Because not everybody can write. And I think we both know that. And getting your, your imagination on the paper is, isn't necessarily a very easy thing. So where did that come from?
2: Well, I'll just tell you this: a buddy of mine told me once, and and he got it from someone else. It's like I'm still waiting for the cops to come arrest me for impersonating a writer. I don't. (laughs) It's like there are days like I'm uh, like I feel like the biggest fraud in town, Um, and I'll show up to work feeling that way often. Um, But uh, I, you know, I just I've always loved movies, and uh, funny enough, not particularly television i didn't watch a lot of tv i just loved movies more i just ended up writing for tv that's where i you know cut my teeth but and also the the other irony is the fact that it was on cop shows and i couldn't stand cop shows as a kid like i turn them all off I, i could care less but that's just so happens where i ended up where i ended up being um and learning structure and all that kind of stuff at least with broadcast and then later with um stuff that's more serialized uh, and character driven, but yeah, man, it, uh, I was, I would write stuff when I was younger, but it wasn't like stories mm-hmm. necessarily. It was more um, hip hop lyrics. Just a, Yeah, totally. Hip hop lyrics, <laughs> poems, wrote a lot of poems.
0: Yeah. So going through, I'm looking at your credits. You have story editor, which, what does that mean? You take somebody else's and you just kind of go through and, and add things or, or take things out. Is it like no. like, what does that even mean? Because I know there's a lot of terms that don't mean exactly mean the, what they say. The,
2: exactly. Well, that's one of those. Um, no, you're not editing anything. It's just a, it's a title that they give. It's a, a step along the process of becoming an executive producer for a TV show. So there's all of these stages you go through as a writer, and the titles sort of delineate uh, where you fall on the ladder and, and are typically equitable to your experience that you've amounted and amassed and your ability.
0: Your skill set, so it's like a resume then, which is, like an, in, an industry yeah, resume. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, and it also denotes how much you're worth. Totally, you know. Yeah, really. Like the jump from staff writer to story editor is the most significant jump you'll make as a writer for television because you literally doubles your salary, and then you start getting paid for scripts.
0: Mm, okay, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I see consulting producer, written by, which you always see in the cre- opening credits of, of shows, or executive story editor, which you never see. And then back to written by, like, what, what is the main one, except for, I'm guessing it's producer or executive producer, but is that correct?
2: Yeah, executive producer is creator, you know, so it's, they they call them showrunner.
0: What the hell is a consulting producer?
2: Consulting producer is a title they give you when they can't afford to pay you the (laughs) fee that they should pay you for what you bring to the table. Got it. And you go, I love this project so much. I love the person who created it. I'm just happy and fortunate to be working on it. I don't care what you pay me. And that's what you tell your agent and your agent goes, let me handle this. And then don't ever say that
0: to this person
2: because they'll pay you
0: nothing. Right. Like what's the difference between the executive producer and a director? Is it just semantics?
2: well it's different on tv than it is with film
0: okay TV, okay
2: tv the writer has usually the creator anyway has more authority on the set than the director with film it's reversed the director has you know the ultimate authority so the difference is when you're on a tv show and you're an executive producer and you're on set and even if you're a you know, just a writer on the show and the staff and you're on the set, you're producing an episode, you're calling the shots. And, and, and to some degree, and your job is trying to make sure that the show is consistent with what's on the page and also that you get everything that you need so that when your show creator, showrunner sits down and editing and goes through their cut of the episode that hopefully they have all of the pieces they need to cut together the best episode possible for that show. So what happens sometimes with visiting directors, because the same director, one director doesn't direct all, particularly for broadcast television, all 24, 22 episodes. You have visiting directors that come in and they add their own voice and spend to some degree with the show, but they try to stay within the world and the characters and the sort of the structure and tone that you've established, whatever your show is. Um but sometimes they may not know something. They don't know something that might have happened five episodes ago and mm-hmm. why a character is reacting a certain way every time they see a pot of boiling water. And so if you're on set and the director is running through that moment and not getting it, you're you're policing that and you're taking the director, going to the director and saying, look, it's really important that when they see this, that they react a certain way because it reminds them of blah, blah, blah. The director goes, oh, OK, great. Got it. So yeah. and if you weren't there and and they shot it and then your showrunner is editing the thing and they get to that moment and it was really critical, right? They'll get really pissed off.
0: It's like a continuity thing. You have to understand where where it came from and where it's going and, and the and the fans will grill you for it if you screw that up.
2: It's continuity and then it's also being able to work with your actors. You want a producer on set, writer who can communicate. A lot of times actors have issues with dialogue particularly on broadcast television, because so much of sometimes on cop shows, what they're saying is exposition. And it's boring. It's completely boring. And no one talks like that.
0: Right. Frankly. Exactly. So
2: they've got to sell it. They've got to make it sound interesting. And and it's hard. It's hard because they're not interested in it. So they've got to figure out. and They also have to understand why they're saying it, most importantly. So if you have a writer on set who's able to talk with them, and come up with alts or come up with a way where they can say the same thing that may, maybe makes it sound more natural to them, um, that, that's worth a lot of money because it, it makes the process of producing that episode a lot more fluid, a lot easier. It helps you make your day in terms of getting all the shots you need. It gives your actors confidence um, and, and makes them confident in the material that they've been given um so being a writer on set and producing an episode there's a lot of different facets to it but those two continuity working with your actors coming up with uh, alt dialogue communicating with your showrunner back home consistently knowing what to say to them choices that you need to make on the day you know to do does danny and garrett wear their badges on the outside do they have their guns in this scene do they need their guns in this scene do they need their badges like you're helping sort of Put out fires, prevent fires from happening, and giving your showrunner more time to focus on what's most important rather than their phone constantly ringing with you know, these little questions that could be answered by you. So that's where having experience and, and being on set and, and being facile as a writer to some degree and being someone who's you know, a, good, kind of a good human being and a good leader really helps and is worth every penny.
0: Do you have interest in doing motion pictures or motion pictures that are made for streaming services like these Netflix or you know originals and hulu originals hundred percent
2: I'm working on two right now. one is about the three Burma Rangers and um, film absolutely I mean I've always sort of as I've been working through TV and and slowly rising through the ranks of television as a writer I've always to some degree seen film on the horizon eventually I mean that's as a kid that's what probably got me most inspired to become uh, to be in the business to be a storyteller more so than hanging around on the sets with my dad so
0: right.
2: yeah I mean eventually that's sort of I think where all roads
0: lead I have a generic question for you but it's an important one as well What's the biggest difference in what you're doing now as far as how different is it? Because, you know, stereotypically when we're growing up, we see the director's chair and someone's sitting there and yelling through, you know, the, I think it's called um, a megaphone maybe. Is that what, is that what we're calling those? Oh, megaphones? Yeah.
2: Oh, 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 I see what you're I, I see what you're asking. Yeah, I mean, I, first off, I never imagined I'd be doing this ever. I, I, I never thought I'd be on a set. and doing it. it's, Sometimes I pinch myself. And other times I'm like, I, on a good day when I think I'm intelligent. I go. Gosh, I could have done something else. It's a lot easier and made a lot more money. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's funny. It's like I feel like I'm I'm right where I, I'm supposed to be uh, on a on a either on a set or when I'm writing or even as hard as it is. And sometimes I want to give up and go, oh, God, you know, just go teach, right, or do something else, you know. And um, but it, on a set, there's a certain camaraderie. You know, you're with people who, to some degree, feel like a family to you. They're, they they feel familiar. It's it's opposite of what you think. You think, oh, you're on the big kahuna. You're the one calling the shots. And the reality is you're you're there. You're almost a glorified butler. You know, you're actually serving everyone else. You're mm-hmm. helping yeah. the director shoot the best um, episode they can. You're helping props make sure they, they get the right props together, that they look great you're helping the actors shine, you know, you're, you're really there being of service to everyone and, and helping and being kind and being generous with your time and making people feel comfortable. I know this sounds strange, but the more people feel relaxed and comfortable and not afraid to take risks at times, and you have to be careful about that, the better product you get. And, and not just in terms of what you're doing, but just in terms of the quality of your day. You know, if you can make someone's make someone's life easier on set, it really trickles down and affects everyone else. It really does. That's that part of it. And then the writing. It's funny because in certain TV shows, you'd be surprised how little of the writing has to do with any of it. Um, the showrunner and creator and some of the top executive producers are going to rewrite everything you wrote anyway. So you're trying to make their job of a rewrite as easy as possible. It's so really your sole job when you're coming in as a writer for TV is to make your showrunner's job, take as much work off of your showrunner's desk as possible. If you can do that, if you can see, if you can see a hole where some of the other writer on the staff or someone else is not doing that and you can fill it and you can help take some work off your show owner's desk you're crushing it you're doing exactly what you need to do you're making their life easier you'd be surprised sometimes it's not knocking a script out of the park it's not you know and i know there's some probably creators will will disagree with me but given my experience and shows i've been on and the way i've survived it's like i'm not always going to knock it out of the park with the script i'm not but what i can do is they send me to set they're not going to worry about what they're going to get at all. And cause I grew up around the business. So that's one of my superpowers and I, and people trust me
0: um, that's because it right I there. don't
2: think they see that I have any sort of agenda other than to really be helpful and to have a good time. So,
0: yeah. And I don't think that whole thing you said is crazy at all. Um, but yeah, people work better when they're not being micromanaged, um, statistically and they're allowed to kind of do what they need to do given the time. It's just, there's like no pressure there, and and you're right. The day is just better. I mean, that's why I love consulting for healthcare IT is because I'm expected to go. It's like in two weeks, this project's due. This Thursday, I want an update. Do what you do, and it's a whole lot easier than where you're at with this. Where you're at with this, 500 emails about where you're at with this. It's just it's it's an unneeded yeah. stress, and you I mean, that's it creates a positive work environment. And productivity goes way up.
2: Someone once said to me that you can tell a lot about a person when you give them a little bit of power and I think that the best mm-hmm. and worst of you really comes out when you're given some power. And if you're at least somewhat of an aware person and go, oh, I turned into a bit of a bastard there, man, I better, I better watch myself <laughs> <laughs> or somebody course corrects you. You're lucky, you know, but yeah, that's, that's right. It's empowering other people and creating a an environment where people feel comfortable to be the best version of themselves and take, you know, risks here and there, and all that stuff. It's not not hard to do.
0: So, how often do people? Well, I have two questions for you. Number one, or how difficult is it to shop a script? But just, I think you kind of answer that, given that you kind of have a resume, so people are going to be more accepting of of listening to you. But even in that, like for for the operative, for example, you have to go from studio to studio to get somebody to accept it. Because I've interviewed some people that are in the industry, and it seems to be one of the biggest, most frustrating things is that Hollywood doesn't know shit about anything, and and then. Sometimes you get lucky and someone picks it up and it's, it's a home run.
2: That's exactly it. I mean, it's like going to Vegas, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen and the house usually wins and people usually leave, you know, with empty pockets. It's like the same thing with a project. You go into town and you shop it around and we did with the operative and everyone passed everyone. And it was soul crushing because we had had this project. We had developed it. I developed it with my dad. You know, he and I like working together. I love working with that guy. It's fun. Uh, I love my dad. And uh, so I would actually drive because I live in town and I would drive out to Malibu. I'd pick him up and then I'd drive back into town. We'd roll in together. We'd listen to music. We'd talk, you know, and then we'd go to NBC. We'd go to the top, this big, you know, and get the pass and you go up to the top floor and then you're, you know, ushered into this room with all of these executives and they're all nice. There's like ten of them.
0: Wow, that's crazy. <laughs>
2: and, and you know, you've got your little folder, your little presentation, and you're selling Windows, man. I mean, you're out there trying to sell something, and and there's your dad, and he's making jokes, but he's a little nervous too. And you're like, oh God, isn't a, the big the big guy's nervous? You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, that tells you all you really need to know about the industry, yeah. in a sense.
2: Yeah, and, and and then you pitch, you know, and you pitch with all your heart and you tell them why you believe in it and why you're excited and how the story and they say no and everyone says no you go from place to place and place to place and someone says well maybe maybe we have to think about it and do some metrics and study and look at do some things and then they come back a week later and say, no it's past so December of last year I thought the project was dead and um, I was in a pretty not a dark place, but I was just really disappointed mm-hmm. and bummed because I I knew how special it was. And I knew it was one of those things that could be really great. And then uh, just through some – actually, my girlfriend's best friend's boyfriend asked me about the project. And it turned out he
0: – Is he with Landmark? A,
2: yeah, he's with Landmark. And he had, they have a distribution deal with Crackle Plus, which is funny because I had just worked at Crackle doing the Oath for two years. And he said he was interested in it. We talked about it and then they got it and, uh, we've been developing with them. So I found a home after all.
0: Yeah, that's good. I I found that like April, 2020, um, they were talking about it with Landmark, So that's good. Do you have a story about shrimp?
2: (laughs) I didn't know about that.
0: (laughs) I know people, man.
2: Dude, I lived on a boat in the Marina. I was dirt poor and I was between jobs and I, my youngest had just been born you know, all I could f- afford was to live on a boat and I was living there on- illegally. And it was a pretty bad boat, man. I mean, if you looked at this boat <laughs> you'd <have> been surprised <laughs> that it was still floating on right. a boat, much less the fact that anyone could sleep on that. It was like, yeah, I um, at night there was this cracking sound. It was this popping sound around the whole of the boat. And, um, it was kind of, it, it was weird, man. It was like, I didn't know if the boat was hitting something and it was going to, and I was going to sink with me on it. And I was like, what a way to go out. Man. <laughs> um, I, I can only see the headline now. Noah dies in a boat. The irony. Yeah. Um,
0: that you, you had your yeah, own little all, arc whatever.
2: there. I'm sure somebody would come up with something way better than that. But anyway, Noah's Ark yeah. found at the bottom, you know, whatever. So I did a little research and it turned out it was a shrimp. What it they do is they release this popping, sound underwater and it stuns their prey long enough for them to to eat them
0: so that's what huh. that's what was happening yeah who'd have thunk not me
2: that's why i had to do a little yeah.
0: research yeah me either I and i know a lot about nothing <laughs> and now i know a little bit more about nothing yeah that's that's, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting How so how often are you approached uh for like an idea of people trying to pitch like a show or series
2: i you know occasionally i get approached People want to send me something to read, you know, or, yeah, or they have an idea, but... uh,
0: Is that family and friends more often than not?
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's family, sometimes it's friends, but, you know. How do you handle that? It happens.
0: Because the, the the probabilities aren't really high on those, I would imagine.
2: So I know some people, writers, who are like, they don't read anything, just as a rule of thumb. They're like, sorry, I won't read it. I think that's kind of a jerk thing to do <laughs> frankly. So I I will read it but I'll be very honest about when I can read it and sometimes it'll be in a couple months I'll be able to get to it maybe in a month and a half I'll be able to get to it and then also I'll be pretty honest about my my reaction to it, right? You know I'll list the positives that I like about something but then I'll always follow it up with a you know critical analysis of what I thought You know, sometimes it's shorter than other times, but generally speaking, if I'm working on something, it's hard for me to read something else because I'll get other voices in my head that'll confuse whatever it is I'm writing. Or sometimes you don't realize you'll read something and it'll stay in the back of your mind. And when you're writing something, say like three months later, you'll come up with an idea that you thought was original, but really it was inspired by something that you read three months ago.
0: Inception-esque.
2: Yeah, and so then you'll be without realizing it. You're not necessarily plagiarizing, but you're not. You're, you know what I mean? So, so I'm really careful about that. So usually I'll read something in between of me working on something new, or if I'm just finishing something, I'll wait until I'm done with it to then read it. So,
0: well, I have. That's how I handle it. I have one for you. Okay. And it's based out of here. Go Gilbert. Go Gilbert. A couple of weeks ago, I'm walking around with. So I get up, rarely do I actually leave the house because I'm really lazy and it's hot. It's more so hot than lazy, but we're walking around the neighborhood and we come across this cat. This cat was missing its head and its guts were kind of pecked apart. So at first, I thought it was a coyote. Right. And I started thinking about it. And the next day I decided it was a owl, those giant horned owls we have, because the fact that the prey was left there and coyotes being canines, being dogs, I would imagine they would pick their prey up and take it to wherever and finish it off, not leave it in somebody's artificial front yard, which, by the way, it's got to suck for them. But I had an idea. You should do a show called CSI Gilbert. Go on. Yes, go on. You're like, yes, yes. You get your pencil ready. This could be crime scene investigation of roadkill dead animals. I said, well, who would really want to do that? And I said, you know, that, that could be a kid's show, actually. It could be a kid's show. You could pitch it to Discovery or whatever, and it could be kind of a fun thing where these these three kids, you know, they get out of school and in school they're not, you know, maybe they hang out or maybe they go to different schools and obviously they'd have to be different races and stuff. You know, you have to have a white kid, a black kid and hell, maybe even a transgender kid. And they get together and they form this little team and it's like, hey, I found a down hawk over here or I found a rabbit with a busted leg. We got to find out who set that trap because that shit is illegal. Though. They were, That'd be, that could be kind of a fun little show, a little CSI Gilbert. CSI Gilbert. CSI Gilbert. What do you think? Is that, is, I mean, is it a big studio production or?
2: Definitely. Definitely big studio. I could see a network eating that up really quickly.
0: I don't want it to get in the way of, you know, the operative. So if I see an episode of the <laughs> operative and all of a sudden there's like a dead cat missing its head and they're trying to figure out what happened <laughs> and, and some character's kid looks into it, you know.
2: It's it's funny because uh, one of the episodes that we talk about that we want to do is called Acoustic Kitty. Because uh, there's a little-known there operation that, that was conducted in the 1960s by the CIA called Acoustic Kitty. And they spent upwards of like tens of millions of dollars on this, which back in the 1960s, was that was a significant amount of taxpayer money. And what it amounted to was – and I forget who it was. It was some dictator or some you know, president of some foreign country or whoever that they wanted to get close to and, and, and listen in on. and they. This dictator had a um, love taken in stray cats. That was his thing. He took in stray kitties. And so what they thought was if we could only put a listening device inside a cat Mm. and then maybe two or three cats and release it into the alleyways next to this dictator's place. The dictator would take this cat in and the cat could listen in on their conversations. So they did uh, months and months of research on how they would insert a listening device into a cat. They eventually came to the conclusion that cats can't be trained. So they shelved the program.
0: That's crazy.
2: It's a a true story. It's called Acoustic Kitty.
0: And so... So
2: we talk about actually how we're going to take that and put that into the show. This is
0: so great. We'll see. There you go. I think the owl. You're onto something. Yeah, I am. See, great minds. I think the owl found out the cat was bugged in this case, ripped his head off. So you like trucks? Yeah. You know, this isn't this is an automotive, and non automotive podcast. Um, tell me, where where did that come from? You know, where where did the the whole truck thing come in?
2: Comes from uh, when I was a kid and I watched Back to the Future. And at the end, Marty McFly gets that glorious black truck. Oh yeah, and it and. Uh, I guess it just left an impression on me, and I've always wanted a, a big black truck ever since. So that's why. And I like trucks. They're practical. They're utilitarian. They get the job done. They're big.
0: What are your thoughts on the Ford Bronco? Do you have any?
2: I just saw a picture of it recently. Uh, I'm not a fan. I, I like the classic Bronco. I like the look of that. The, the new one, at least from what I saw, and maybe I saw the wrong picture. I'm not sure I saw very. Quickly, and glanced at it. Sure, um, wasn't really that stunning
0: to me. People are looking. You know what
2: I'm interested in is that new Tesla truck.
0: The Cybertruck looks
2: interesting. Cybertruck, yeah, that thing looks interesting to me.
0: You know, it's interesting. It, it looks like the futuristic version of a vehicle of a fu- of of a truck from 1978. You know, so you go through those books. Remember those car books, or or just any books about the future. And that's what it looks like to me. And because of that, it's kind of interesting and cool as well. It's hideous and and super cool at the same time.
2: I'm not, I I don't call it, I disagree with you that it's hideous. I guess that's personal, you know, that's that's taste, right? But there's something he said that was interesting, which is that generally speaking, the strongest part of a truck is the internal skeletal structure of a truck. And he took all of that and put that on the outside to sort of provide this very protective exoskeleton. That's kind of cool to me. I don't know why, but maybe it's because secretly I uh, have visions of an apocalyptic fu- you know, future and I'll need that.
0: If people want to follow up on the operative and follow you, what, what, you know, where can they reach? You know, where should they go?
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, although I'm starting to think I'm going to leave Facebook. Yeah. It's just it's getting a little weird, but I am on Instagram and twitter i I haven't been on twitter in a long while i just posted a picture of we shot a scene of john straw who's the lead character played by my dad out in malibu Um, and that's online at least the silhouette of him they can follow those two things they want to see more information
0: it's been really awesome having you if you're ever in town man reach out and I'll, i'll buy you a drink
2: hey that'd be great I won't even. You can buy me a drink. I'll buy you a drink. That's that's perfect.
0: Beer, bourbon, whiskey, seltzer.
2: All the the above. I even like the uh, more feminine drinks too, my friend. I'll even go for a hard apple cider, not to suggest that that's a feminine drink, but I'll go for a blue moon. I'll go for a nice martini. Sometimes I might even surprise you and get a lemon drop martini. I'll (laughs) even have just straight up whiskey. I'll have an old fashioned. I'll have a Guinness. I'm all over the map, man. Yeah, that sounds all over the map.
0: Just like me. Yeah. If it has any percent of alcohol, chances are I'll at least give it a shot.
2: See, I'm I'm about diversity. Yeah. You
0: know I mean? <laughs> all right. That's I'll fine. talk to you later.
2: Hi, brother. Thanks, Thanks for talking Noah. with you. Yep. Bye. All
0: right. Bye. I want to thank Noah Nelson for coming on. Sorry, I did not get to any of your submitted questions for him. He was able to answer some of them within the context of that conversation. You can find him at Noah R Nelson, all ran together on Instagram and on Twitter, it's probably the same thing, I hate Twitter, I'm on Twitter. Coming up, my Q&A with you guys. for the q a segment sponsored by last Era brand motorsports clothing vintage racing inspired apparel to celebrate and represent the 80s and 90s era of motorsports racing from group b le mans imsa indy and formula one follow them on instagram at last Era brand or go shopping at lastairbrand.com tell them the hard parking podcast sent you this week i collected a handful of questions if i did not pick your question i suggest you try better next time Southern Germination asks, what are your short-term and long-term thoughts about No Monterey Car Week in 2020? So Monterey Car Week is one of the events every year that I actually look forward to doing. A lot of people look forward to doing, and I have been fortunate for the last three years of getting an invite by Acura to attend their private party, which usually comes with a ticket for the quail, which is a very expensive event. This year, obviously, everything got canceled. I'm thinking next year it'll be more difficult, so I may not even get an invite because at the end of the day I'm not really that important. I mean, I still want to go, but I don't think I'll get to go to that show at least. So JDMLE So I think it's JDM Legend, but I'm not quite sure what happened with his username. Which one do you prefer? If you were to have a stock NSX again, would you go naturally aspirated? Would you go supercharged? Would you go turbo, and why? I'll tell you what. If you check out the Gears and Gasoline video, three NSXs. One NA, one SC, one turbo, you can pick. I'm turbo now. I can't imagine not being turbo. Naturally, aspirated would be really nice, but you pay a hell of a lot of money for a small gain, but you also trade that for basically a bulletproof motor. Janat 87 asks, are you going to do a new wrap design for the NSX? Gino, you must not listen to the podcast. No, I am not. Az McLaren asks, have you got a good plan for the interior or are you just tidying up? So basically the other day I posted a photo on Instagram of my door panels taken apart. And what I'm really trying to do is adjust the passenger window. It's a little off. And after monkeying with it for a few hours, I decided to come in, come in the house and call Science Speed and set up an appointment and have them do it. Possum Killer MK6, would you ever consider doing a swap to right-hand drive for your NSX? I can't think of a worse idea. That makes me mad. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Silver NSX asks, will you buy a Zanardi NSX? No. The Volvo God asks, if you could keep the same livery but change the color scheme on the NSX, what would you choose? If you keep the same livery, why would you change the color? Uh, That doesn't make sense. And Jason the Stark asks, what's your favorite bourbon for day drinking? Jason, listen to the last episode. I answered that. That's it for Q&A. I want to thank Noah Nelson again for coming on the show. If you want to follow him on Instagram, that's Noah R. Nelson. I actually could not, find, I couldn't find him on Twitter, but be looking for a show called The Operative, starring his father, Craig T. Nelson. If you want to pick up some show swag, we have a Teespring page that nobody's bought anything from, but it's still there. If you have questions, comments, send your emails to heartparkingpodcast at gmail.com. We don't have a Patreon, but I know you're out there and you're trying to figure out, hey, how do I support the show? In the show description, there should be a link and you can click on it and you can send me 99 cents a month. Just 99 cents a month. I think I'm going to get somebody on here to do one of those super sappy reads. For just 99 cents a month, you can support the Hard Parking Podcast. What's that, like 3 cents a day? You follow me on Instagram at NA2NSX or J underscore travels at JHAE. I want to thank our sponsors, the NSX channel, Koya Automotive, Last Era Motorsport brand dressupbolts.com, higher quality detail. I can't grow unless you tell people how awesome this podcast is. Let's do this. Let's grow this thing together. Shut up!